Welcome to Veneco Candanga, a new Latino giant segment reporting on evolving democracy and social movements in Venezuela. I'm your host, Juan Andres Misley. I'm joined today by Alejandro Velasco. He's an associate professor of Latin American history at New York University's Yeltsin School of Individualized Study and executive director at NACLA Report on the Americas. His latest book is Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela, a book that chronicles the history of the iconic 23 Enero neighborhood in Caracas. Alejandro, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Alejandro, I want to begin first um, congratulating you on this book. This is probably the most interesting account I have read about this side of urban Venezuela to this date. You describe the 23 Enero Barrio as a strategic and symbolic manifestation of the promise of democracy. Can you tell us what makes the 23 Enero neighborhood such an iconic and transcendental place in Venezuela's modern political history? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for those nice comments and words. I really appreciate it. Um, so, El 23, as it's popularly known in, in Caracas and in Venezuela, um, short for 23 Enero, has both the symbolic and physical proximity to Venezuelan history, especially modern Venezuelan history. Physically, it's located right in the heart of downtown Caracas. It's um, literally a stone's throw away from uh, the presidential palace, from the National Assembly. Um, uh, physically, it's also a, hi a highly imposing uh, neighborhood. It's comprised of uh, 1950s-era superblocks, um, which at the time were some of the most modern um, housing that uh, that was around in Latin America. Um, recently, it's uh, over the last you know 20, 30 years, it's now also been incorporated by um, by squatter settlements, which we can talk about later. But it looks visually imposing. Um, and then the other way in which it's uh, symbolically central is that uh, it's called 23 de Enero. Um, but to understand the, the significance of this name, which of course translates to January 23rd, it's also important to realize that it's not the first name that the neighborhood had. Um, it was first founded under a different name, which also was a different date, Dos de Diciembre, December 2nd, which was a date in 1952 when the dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez um, had solidified its its rule over Venezuela and had embarked on a tremendous project of public works and um, really transforming the visage both of Caracas as the showcase for a new Venezuela, what he called the, the new national ideal, um, and really a, a, a new sort of place of Venezuela in the world economy. Um, of course, he did so at the at, you know, at the barrel of a gun through through sort of a military dictatorship. But nevertheless, his signature project by which he thought that all of Caracas would, especially the working classes of Caracas, would now become modern citizens, was uh, encapsulated in this uh, neighborhood called that he called Dos de Diciembre. Um, Again, because it was a dictatorship, what was papered over were the significant amounts of discontent that were um, rising to the surface as people, even those among um, the ones that moved to the Dos de Siembre, um, realized that what they lacked, even though they now had you know modern housing coming from squatter settlements themselves, what they lacked was a voice in the political system. And so on January 23rd of 1958, they helped uh, usher in a new period of democratic rule by uh, joining in with uh, groups of civilian um, elites as well as military sectors in overthrowing the dictatorship of Pérez Jiménez. Of course, now you had a problem 
what are you going to call this neighborhood that had such a tremendous uh, symbolic attachment to the now fallen regime? Well, neighbors took it upon themselves to rename very organically their neighborhood 23 Enero, which now linked them very much to the new and highly uncertain democratic project that was to unfold. Um, this in terms of its origins, but what would happen is that over the next 30 years, this neighborhood that, again, seemed to have such a tremendous uh, link to the history, sort of the modern political history of Venezuela, um, at least at that moment of transition, would come also to figure centrally in some of the more dramatic and sometimes violent battles over what democracy would be defined as in Venezuela. So, for instance, in the 1960s, the 23 Senero was a hotbed of insurgent, um, you know, leftist insurgency uh, battles, as well as counterinsurgent battles. The, the, the governments of, of Romulo Etancourt and later Raul Leoni in the 1960s made uh, the pacification of the 23 and very much sort of a signature part of their um, of the counterinsurgent battles. Then in the 1970s, um, you had a moment of incorporation of, uh, of this neighborhood and all that it stood for into the two major parties of the period, Acción Democrática and, um, uh, and COPE, the Christian Democratic Party. Um, and then in the 1980s, even though in the 1970s you also had a significant amount of, um, uh, of, of, of street protests by neighbors as uh, the upkeep of their neighborhood, um, again, which was built and built as a public housing project, it um, deteriorated significantly, even though there was a huge boom in oil prices that was not going to, um, you know, to benefit the neighbors. And so they protested um, continuously. And then what you had in the 1980s was the emergence of a uh, of a schism on the one hand between the neighborhood and, and, and its neighbors and the authorities of, of the democratic regime. But also you have this sort of interesting combination of what had once been sort of the demobilized radical sectors and factions of the insurgencies of the 1960s and, um, you know, run-of-the-mill neighbors that weren't really politicized but very much felt the shortcomings of the democratic project that they had lived under now for 25 years. And so those two came together in some highly innovative forms of protest that very much stood outside the, you know, what at the time was, was a very storied and, um, uh, and celebrated, uh, you know, institutional apparatus that made Venezuela the, the envy of, of democracies and um, or certainly governments throughout the or, uh, societies throughout the region that were embroiled in civil war or dictatorship, and yet what was happening outside of that institutional framework in places like El 23 was a significant amount of, um, of guess, some, sometimes highly contentious, very innovative protest that, um, that was escaping the sight of, um, of elites, all of which sort of came to a significant head in 1989 on February um, 27th, what's known in Venezuela as the Caracaso, when after a series of, uh, uh, of structural adjustment policies that were pushed through by the government of Carlos Andres Perez, there was a huge explosion um, that, interestingly, even though the the place of El 23 in that explosion was actually quite minimal in terms of participation in, in the process that happened, because it held such an important symbolic uh, place in the national imagination, the state very severely repressed, far more than, um, uh, you know, far more proportionally speaking, El 23 and other parts of, um, of Caracas. Um, and as a result, that really marked, again, symbolically, uh, a major split between urban popular sectors 
and the Venezuelan governments that had, again, built themselves as, um, as democratic uh, for the previous 30 years. I want to fast forward a little more to the 21st century. Now, despite being a bastion of Chavismo, uh, the opposition narrowly won in the 23 Enero in the last congressional elections in 2015. It is now represented by Jorge Millán from Primera Justicia, the party of opposition leader Enrique Capriles. To what extent and in what ways have popular dynamics changed within urban sectors since the death of former President Hugo Chavez? Yeah, so firstly, I think it's important to, re, um, to, to, to go back to uh, the 1990s a little bit and sort of the, the, the era before Chavez um, to understand why El 23 became, um, you came to be seen as such a hotbed of revolution now linked to a much different government. So it had been built and linked to the military dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez, then it had taken up this name that would usher in um, and would be identified with the democratic regimes of the Punto Fijo era between 1958 and 1998. And then it became sort of the, the central, uh, um, central place in the imaginary of, uh, of Chavismo. And partly the reason why, why it became so was because of sort of this history of, of um, of oppositional politics in each of the previous regimes, um, such that it was marked, at least uh, by some, as always already kind of a site for leftist extremism. What's curious about that reading is that, in fact, for instance, throughout the 1970s um, and 1980s, uh, El 23 and its residents voted significantly in favor, again, of the two major parties at the time. So, you know, even though in the 1960s they had rejected those parties in the 1970s and 1980s, they, they, they very much came around, which suggests that there was, you know, strong uh, support, even if not for, um, you know, the particular ideological projects of Acción Democrática and COPE, there was certainly strong support for the of democracy, you know, the vote in particular, as the, um, as the entry to a legitimate form of political engagement, right? Um, and I think that speaks a little bit to what, um, on the one hand, was you know, opposition in El 23 to the coup by Hugo Chavez in 1992, you know, residents of the neighborhood, even though he staged the coup, um, you know, the, the staging ground for his coup was the Museo Militar, um, which is actually right in the middle, in the heart of the 23 Senero, there wasn't a massive groundswell of support for, for his coup, uh, because in part they rejected that kind of, um, you know, that, that kind of approach to politics uh, as they had rejected it in the 19 in the 1960s, they much favored um, your democratic engagement through these procedures, even though they understood the vote not to be the end-all, be-all of politics, but rather just the beginning of, of politics, which was, of course, expressed by the ways in which they, they protested extra-institutionally once they you know, had participated in elections. Um, so you know, what happened in terms of you know, creating, number one, this, this kind of fiction of the 23 as a Chavista parish, as a, as a Chavista neighborhood, was this misunderstanding of the highly nuanced and complex ways in which people from barrios like El 23 negotiated their presence vis-a-vis um, -vis the prior regime, the, the Punto Fijo regime, which was one of opposition to the parties in power, but support for the system that underlay it. Um, sort of the democratic system that underlay it in terms of participation in elections and such. But what they also wanted, and said they had wanted from the beginnings of having helped to overthrow Perez Jimenez, was greater say in the 
fray of decision making, which is why the uh, initial sort of Chavista or Chavez's initial appeal to participatory protagonistic democracy was quite appealing, right? And in fact, in places like El 23, because of this pre existing history of organization, of social movements, you know, many of the um, of the social programs that Chavez would roll out, and also some of the, you know, the, the participatory mechanisms that he would roll out, communal councils, Bolivarian circles, and such, they were, um, they found a very strong and, uh, and, and, um, and, and uh, dynamic home in El 23. Um, what happened is, especially around 2014, 2015, when the government of Nicolás Maduro began very much to move outside of the fray of formal democratic politics, it really be it became clear that his primary aim was uh, to stay in power rather than to advance in some of these um, innovative mechanisms for greater participation, greater protagonism by popular sectors, that that fundamental path, right, that, that fundamental sense of um, we support the underlying system, if not necessarily the people who are in power, that came to kick in again as it had before. So, you know, from a historical perspective, it was actually quite um you know, quite not predictable, but it was. It certainly wasn't very surprising that El 23, even though again it had been built as this you know hyper Chavista parish um, neighborhood, would vote for the opposition in 2000, um, you know, 2015, very much as a way to indicate their rejection of the ways in which Maduro, in particular, had moved away. From uh, you know, from that fundamental commitment, which you know, Chavez, they very much saw Chavez as having maintained, to at the very least the formal trappings of democracy as the benchmark, as the you know, the entry point, the minimal sort of requirement for engaging in um, in uh, you know in, in society. Do you think the 23 Nero neighborhood is likely to back President Nicolás Maduro's communal, communal initiative to rewrite the Constitution? Or do you sense popular sectors preferring a change of government instead? Which scenario falls in line best with the neighborhood's history? Well, actually, we've sort of seen it. Um, the, uh, in, uh, the night after the, uh, the National Assembly, uh, the Constituent Assembly votes were announced, there was this big protest that happened in El 23. Now, partly this protest was clouded by the fact that um, there had been many, many protests throughout the day. Um, and some of the, the bloodiest and most violent protests of what had been at that point four months of uninterrupted protests against the Maduro government. Um, you know, uh, 10 people died at the end of the, of, of the day when, on, um, on July 30th when the, the votes were announced. But once the votes were announced, there was the significant protest against the against the results. So calling the results fraudulent because some of the more radical candidates that had uh, mounted an an autonomous, independent, far sort of radical left position from the anti-Tresanero to become uh, constituyentes to participate in the assembly were basically completely sidelined in the results that the. Um, that 
the the National Electoral Council announced, because basically it was a, a winner-take-all system. And what they were demanding is that there should be more proportional representation so that these voices that had you know, been mounting um, uh, opposition, especially to the corruption that they saw in the government, to the, the you know, excessive bureaucracy that they saw in the government, to the lack of sort of commitment to revolutionary principles that they saw in the government, that they could have a say in, in shaping the Constituent Assembly. And yet what they found with these results is that they too are going to be marginalized. And instead, you know, the, the slate of representatives from Mad 23 was comprised exclusively of, of you know, PESUV uh, candidates. Um, all of which suggests that, you know, what people in El 23, especially some of the more radical sectors in El 23, what they were looking for, again, was participation in the process of decision making that had now certainly been completely abandoned. And when they, uh, you know, when when it's so clear, they have no qualms and, and protesting. In terms of what they want, you know, they're sort of stuck between a kind of rock and a hard place. On the one hand, what they want is to deepen sort of the participatory and protagonistic dimensions of what they imagined, at least in the beginning, uh, the Chavista political project um, had in mind. But at the same time, you know, they realize that Maduro is not um, actually interested in that. Um, and so they reject the you know, the Malurista version of this effort to you know, create more participatory mechanisms as basically a craven um, attempt to stay in power, but they support the underlying idea that what Venezuela really needs, especially for popular sectors, is greater mechanisms for participation. The fact is that right now they don't see that anywhere in the political scenario. And so, you know, more and more what you're finding is that these sectors are sort of retreating into their own spaces or retrenching into their own spaces, which of course is also aided by the fact that, you know, the crisis, the economic crisis hits them far, you know, as much certainly as, as the rest of the country and sometimes worse, right? So, you know, they, you know there, there's far greater opportunities for, um, for participating at this time. I want to talk about violence as a method of protest. Your book encapsulates very well how these urban sectors interacted inside and outside of conventional democratic norms. There's a very interesting chapter in the book detailing how residents, even families, would block streets with barricades and burning tires after spending days without water. How does the use of violence in popular sectors as a mechanism of protest compare to methods seen in middle-class neighborhoods? Are there significant differences? There's, you know, I think that, that partly what ends up happening is that similar similarities in tactics get confused for similarities in strategy. Um, and so every roadblock is not the same, is not built the same, is not demanding the similar, you know, similar things. You know, the biggest um, difference between the kinds of, you know, what we'd call guarimbas, right, in, in the more con, uh, contemporary parlance of, of um, sort of anti-Chavista um, contentious politics and, and the uh, bloques de ruta um, or cortes de ruta, cortes de calle in, in the pre-Chavez era. Um, you know, the biggest difference is that on, um, on one hand, what you find is that uh, in those prior protests before the Chavez era, people closed the street because they demanded state the state's attention. It was a way to dramatize and to symbolize the closing of communication channels between the state 
and um, and society, right? So to close the you know to close a road, at a strategic intersection, etc., was a way to say you have stopped listening as you're listening to us, and therefore we need to call your attention. We need to call you into our midst. You know, with the Guarimbas, closing of roads was quite the opposite. It was a way to reject the presence of the state in those spaces, right? It was a way to sort of shun the legitimacy of the state. Um, to reject it. And so, you know, shorthand, one of the ways that, um, you know, I tend to think about it is that there's a difference between protestas ante el gobierno, those that, um, you know, that that face up to the government, face up to the state, and protestas ante el gobierno, protests that um, that are against the state, right? And so one calls the state into participate or into engagement, the other one explicitly rejects it. The fact that we sort of misunderstand that this difference between tactics and, tra- and strategy um, is important, I think, indicative of a larger kind of misunderstanding of... Um, you know, of the ways in which basically, and this is one of the things that I tried to do in, in my book, the ways in which we tend to conflate histories of what is, in fact, a highly divided country. And I don't mean divided in sort of like a polarized way, although that, of course, is true. Divided in terms of histories that aren't easily represented or subsumed under the narrative frameworks of those who are imagining their place in history. So, for instance, right, and um, this is what allows, uh, you know, in the 1980s for, you know, political scientists and economists and, and policymakers and the rest to think that, okay, things are getting a little bit hairy. The economy is, is, is not doing as well as it was before, but fundamentally things are well until, of course, there's a social explosion. And it's sort of like, well, where did this come from? It came from out of nowhere. But no, in fact, it, you know, it had this long preceding history. But, you know, this inability to see beyond sort of like your immediate um, milieu and to assume that everything that, that is happening is new and never known before and that you know you are accomplishing something entirely different that that makes it impossible to see beyond your immediate framework and to some extent that's what's happening with the you know the way that people read the um, you know the protest movement of the opposition even again it's sort of tactically similar to the ways that um, that popular sectors protested before it's, it's very very different um, strategically pursues far different ends um, but you you know, there's just an assumption that, well, if we kind of do the same things that populist sectors are doing, perhaps that means that we are part of this larger whole, when in fact, you know, that's not, in, that's not at all the case. As talks of a possible negotiated transition between Chavismo and the opposition on Sioux, what role, if any, do residents of neighborhoods in popular sectors like El 23 Enero, Petare, and other important slums have in shaping the future of democracy and participation in Venezuela? Well, I think, you know, if anything has come out of the, the Chavez era, and I, and I believe this, um, is that, let me, let me put it this way, I want to believe this, is that uh, whatever happens next, whatever comes to power next to Venezuela, I mean, much will depend on the way in which they come to power for certain, but m- much about the transition and the f- future stability of any uh, uh, Venezuelan project that emerges from this this moment of intense crisis will depend on the ability of those sectors to understand that it's impossible to sideline or marginalize the demands, especially for participation, not for handouts, 
you know, not for immediate goods or services, but for participation of popular sectors. Because ultimately that is what drove, number one, the aspirations of neighborhoods like El 23 de Enero in the late 1950s to help to overthrow the dictatorship of Marcos Perez Jimenez. That's what helped these popular sectors to take up to, you know, to the streets and, um, in 1989 uh, in the Caracaso. That's what led these popular sectors to, you know, to really latch on to um, you know, uh, Chavez's message about participation and protagonism, you know, beyond even the, you know, the, the social programs that eventually, you know, took root. One of the things that I always like to, you know, to say to students and others is, you know, the first social programs that Chavez rolled out, the ones that you could concretely call, even if you wanted to, you know, be pejorative and say they're sort of clientelistic, the first of those programs weren't rolled out until 2003, and those were very piecemeal, and they were, you know, they began to be rolled out in earnest in 2004. Of course, he was first elected in 1998, which means it was a period of about five to six years when, you know, Sectors that fervently supported Chavez and Chavismo didn't do so because they felt that something you know, uh, material was in, uh, in store for them. They supported it primarily on this abstract notion that it mattered to have a president and it mattered to have a, a constitution in which their voices formally were included, right? And that they they had mechanisms in order to, that there, there was at least the aspiration to have mechanisms um, you know, to, to formalize their, their participation and protagonism in democracy. And so as a result of that, the, the role of these sectors going forward in any kind of negotiation, I think, is primarily going to be holding whoever comes to power next uh, in check to make sure that those initial, you know, uh, uh, those aspirations for greater participation are not abandoned in any kind of transition scenario, right? So, for instance, right, a... a, a you know, if, if, if a government comes to power that implements a very severe, much more so than currently even, you know, neoliberal uh, adjustment package um, that completely sidelines the aspirations for participation of popular sectors is very likely going to be met with the same kind of protest that you've been seeing, except for you know, different kind of composition um, as you, you know, you've been seeing in, in Venezuela over the past few years, right? Um, so I think that the role of these sectors is going to be to maintain or to keep alive, right, the, uh, this aspiration that now is, you know, 50 years running, that whatever democracy is going to mean in Venezuela, it should and has to have a place and a mechanism for popular sectors to participate and to feel and to be part of the decision-making process more than just periodic elections. Um, and to the extent that that's, uh, you know, making sure that that, that stays uh, the case, that will be their primary role. Well, it's a very well-researched and thoroughly insightful book, and I actually predict people will come back to it repeatedly in the future to try and crack the code between popular demands and the acquisition of power. I want to thank my guest, Alejandro Velasco, Associate Professor at NYU Galton and Executive Director at North American Congress on Latin America. This book is Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. And this is Veneco Candanga. <laughs>